Many of us lock our doors at night. We do so when we go to bed or when we leave for the day as a very basic security measure, maybe the most basic security measure. Gives us peace of mind and hopefully, if that day would ever come when a would-be burglar tries to break in, a locked door would deter them, uh, deter a burglar looking for easy access to an unlocked house. We are told in the gospel that the disciples had locked their door, but they weren't looking for peace of mind, nor were they trying to deter a burglar, a burglary or a robbery. No, we are told that they are afraid of the Jews, which, if you think about it, at first glance might seem ironic. Because at this point in history, every single one of Jesus' disciples is Jewish. So how can they be afraid of the Jews? Well, we need to keep this in mind. When we read the Gospel of John and we see that phrase, the Jews, it's not referring to the religion of Judaism. It's not referring even to the ethnicity. It's referring to a geographical location You've got to remember the apostles are all from Galilee, which is in the north. Jerusalem is in the south in a place called Judea. Gets its name from the tribe of Judah. So it might be more accurate to say they are afraid of the Judeans, of those who live in and around Jerusalem. And hopefully it's obvious why they're afraid of the Judeans. Because Jesus and his apostles, as well as many others from Galilee, They came to Jerusalem for Passover as pilgrims. And pretty quickly, the tables turn on Jesus. He's betrayed, arrested. He's wrongfully convicted in this kangaroo court, tortured and mocked and crucified and killed. And the apostles are afraid because they think they're next. They are still in Jerusalem, still in Judea. But a locked door, let's be honest, is not going to stop the men who conspired to kill Christ. You can imagine the fear that at any moment the same temple guards who arrested Jesus could break through that locked door and do the same to them. But what happens next scatters their fears. The risen Christ comes and stands in their midst, saying, Peace be with you. And he shows them his wounded hands inside. Then he entrusts them with a mission. He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. If people ever ask, Where is confession in the Bible? It's right here. Jesus is giving his own authority to forgive sins to these apostles. Because the apostles aren't mind readers, and neither are their successors, bishops and priests. Sins must be confessed so that they can be forgiven in this sacrament. But notice, though, notice this mission Jesus entrusts to the apostles. Notice what it is not. It is not to go and get even with the people who did Christ wrong. Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate. No, Jesus sends the apostles to forgive sins rather than to avenge sins. This, is, uh, this shows us two very important truths about the kingdom of God. First, the real enemy 
is not Caiaphas or Pilate. It's not Herod or Caesar. It's a supernatural enemy. Satan, who tempted our first parents into joining his rebellion, a a doomed rebellion from the start. And since the fall of our first parents, sin, death, and the devil have imprisoned, locked up humanity, so to speak. Christ sends out these apostles to reconcile souls to God. The second thing it tells us is this. Christ came to reconcile sinners, which is good for us. Because if we're honest, looking at Pilate and Caiaphas, Herod, we probably see some similarities. Similarities with Caiaphas' cunning and hypocrisy, with Pilate's pride, and then ultimately, you know, his fear of what others might think or do or say about him, which is what drives him to crucify a man he knows in his heart of hearts is innocent, or Herod, who lived for power and human respect and pleasure. What's good news about all this is that because of Christ's mercy, because of his triumph over sin and death, we aren't defined by our sins, whatever they may be. We're defined by his grace and mercy because Christ has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil definitively. And that word triumph is important. It calls to mind a a military conquest. You know, there's a a little-known Catholic saint, Melito of Sardis. He was a second-century bishop. He gave a, a very powerful Easter homily where he captured the triumph of Christ's resurrection over sin, death, and the devil. Here's what he said. Jesus rose from the dead and cried aloud, Who will contend with me? Let him confront me. I have freed the condemned, brought the dead back to life, raised men from their graves. Who has anything to say against me? I, he said, am the Christ. I have destroyed death, triumphed over the enemy, trampled hell underfoot, bound the strong one, and taken men up to the heights of heaven. I am the Christ. Come then, all you nations of men, receive forgiveness for the sins that defile you. I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover that brings salvation. I am the lamb who was immolated for you. I am your ransom, your life, your resurrection, your light. I am your salvation and your king. I will bring you to the heights of heaven. With my own right hand, I will raise you up and I will show you the eternal father. Christ has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be defined by our sins. No sin is stronger than his Mercy and no number of sins is beyond his power to forgive. We only have to go to him through one of his ministers, a priest in the sacrament of reconciliation, confess our sins and be forgiven. It's a fitting message for Divine Mercy Sunday, which we celebrate today. Now, Divine Mercy Sunday, it's based on these visions that St. Faustina, a Polish nun, uh, received and recorded in her diary. The church later authenticated the visions or or verified them as authentic. In one vision, Jesus said this to her, Write, speak of my mercy. Tell souls where they are to look for solace. That is, in the tribunal of mercy, which is what he frequently called confession to St. Faustina. There the greatest miracles take place and are incessantly repeated. 
To avail oneself of this miracle, it is not necessary to go on a great pilgrimage or to carry out some external ceremony. It suffices to come with faith to the feet of my representative and to reveal to him one's misery, and the miracle of divine mercy will be fully demonstrated. Were a soul like a decaying corpse, so that from a human standpoint there would be no hope of restoration and everything would already be lost, it is not so with God. The miracle of divine mercy restores that soul in full. Oh, how miserable are those who do not take advantage of the miracle of God's mercy. And if it sounds too good to be true, if it sounds too good to be true that Christ has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil, and that he makes it easy for us to be set free from our sins, then remember the lesson of doubting Thomas. You know, Thomas doubted that his brothers, apostles, uh, brother apostles and disciples had seen the Lord. And we too can doubt and distrust, choosing to believe lies like my sin is too big, I can't be forgiven again. On Divine Mercy Sunday, forget such lies and nonsense. Lies which lock the doors of, to our hearts and souls and cut us off from God and others. Let us take the words of our Lord to doubting Thomas to heart. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Believe, trust in his mercy. And let us allow the mercy of Christ to free us from the imprisonment to sin by taking frequent, uh, uh, taking frequent advantage of the tribunal of his mercy, sacrament of reconciliation.